are two passages of Scripture which are the text of this sermon. The first is in the third chapter of Genesis, beginning at verse 6. And the other passage is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. And so I'd invite you to turn to those um, passages of Scripture with me. In Genesis chapter 3, which is the very first book of the Bible, and then in Mark chapter 10. If you will, just um, leave these, leave your Bible open on your lap so that you can follow along with me as we develop the sermon idea this morning, which is a case for unselfishness. Beginning in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now the Mark passage, beginning at verse 35 of the 10th chapter. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right hand and, the, and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking for. For are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, and calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you, do, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. 
Wilbur, Wilbur Reese wrote with painfully penetrating sarcasm. I'd like to buy, he said, three dollars worth of God. I don't want so much that it will blow my soul or disturb my sleep. I want enough just about equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want so much of him that it would make me love a black man or pick beets with the migrants. For it is ecstasy that I'm after, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb and not the new birth. I'd like to have a pound of the eternal in the paper sack. I'd like about three dollars worth of God. I want you to know an enemy wrote those lines. But ironically, that enemy is present in this service today. He sang a couple of the hymns. He listened to the choral anthem. He smiled when the children came down for the children's sermon and participated in the offertory. And that enemy doesn't sit in the seat in front of you or behind you or beside you. He occupies your seat. It was a wise man who wrote, If I could kick right in the seat of the pants, the person who brings me more sorrow than anyone else, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. We are all, we all are our worst enemies, aren't we? And yet it is not that simple to say that we are an enemy of God because I belong to God and I love Him and I want to be like Him and I want to please Him. And yet down inside of me there is this enemy that keeps raising his head and demanding his rights and his way. Down inside of me there is this enemy that just keeps on asserting himself. Mark Twain calls him the dark side of our moon. John, uh, Martin Luther referred to him as history's greatest pope. And the Apostle Paul called him the old man. And I can identify with Paul when he said, The things that I want to do are the things I never do. And the things that I know I should leave undone are the things that I'm always doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will be able to deliver me from the body of this death? Who's able to deliver me from this enemy? Well, where did this enemy come from? Where did he originate? Where did he get his birth? Well, we need to get a little background of that. And so it all starts back in that Genesis account right there in the passage you have before you. As a matter of fact, in the second chapter, the last verse, it tells that that first pair were together in that primal garden. And the scripture says that they were naked and not ashamed of it. Naked and not ashamed. The Hebrew word for naked means to be opened. It means to be laid bare. It's the picture of a petal of a flower opening every one of its petals open so that everybody can see it. They were naked, but they were not ashamed. The Hebrew root translates, they were naked before one another, but they were not ashamed. Have you ever wondered why they were not ashamed? The next chapter says that they became ashamed of their nakedness. Why weren't they ashamed in the beginning? It was because they were, each one was conscious of the other. They were totally without self-consciousness. They were wholly and completely 
aware and conscious of the other person, each conscious of the other. And while they were together, their only concern was for the other until sin came. And there is something terribly revealing about what they lost when sin came. They lost not only something that they had with God, they lost not only their standing with God, they lost something that they had with one another. And verse 7 is the premier passage that deals with the consequence of sin. For it says in verse 7 that their eyes were opened for the first time. Their eyes were opened. Opened to what? Opened to themselves. For the first time they became self-conscious. For the first time, this other consciousness, this other look turned in on itself and the great cover-up began. And they began to wear these masks that uh, Larry has sung about there in that moment of special music. They began to cover up and they sowed fig leaves. Did you notice the passage? It says that they sowed fig leaves for themselves. Adam didn't sow Eve's or Eve didn't sow Adam's. They were self-conscious now. They were interested in self now. And Adam might have said to Eve, Honey, while you got the sewing machine out, will you sew my fig leaves together? And she said, Sew your own fig leaves, big guy. I'm concerned about myself now. All the interest and all the concern now turns in on itself, on self. And they not only lost that marvelous relationship that they had in the primal garden with each other, they lost something with God. They lost their fellowship. And they begin to hide from Him and the scripture says that God came walking in the cool of the garden. What a descriptive phrase. And he said, Adam, where are you? Not because God didn't know where he was, but because God wanted, to know, wanted Adam to know where he was. Where are you? Why are you here? What is going on? And Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. It's a half-truth. He was afraid because... He had sinned against God because he had disobeyed Him and he hid himself. And verse 10 is a classic response from God. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? I mean, how'd you find that out? And Adam began to say, Well, Eve gave me this apple and I discovered. And Eve began to blame the serpent. But the real reason why they were conscious of their nakedness for the first time and were ashamed of it was because for the first time they were self-conscious. Sound like anybody you know? I mean, whose seat were you interested in when you came into here this morning? I mean, really. Or whose parking place? Or whose rights? And you say, well, that's, easier for, that's easy for you to say, preacher. You've got a seat always right up here. And I must confess to you in painful confession that I am the most selfish of all of you and the most self-conscious. And so we gathered here yesterday to do a little taping of this television ministry and all these lights were shining and they asked me to, to practice my sermon. I got up here and I was so painfully conscious of self Am I going to sweat huh, under these lights? Um, am I going to look good? Am I going to sound good? Wasn't even aware, wasn't even thinking about those people who will be hearing out there who have never heard the God. All I was saying about, am I going to look sweaty? Am I going to look bad? Am I going to sound good? And went totally blank in this sermon. I confess to you with painful confession that I am the most selfish of all. 
And so the centuries came and the centuries went. And Adam and, Eve had, Adam and Eve had children, and they had children, and they had children. And each one was looking out for number one. And each began to learn how to win by intimidation. And the centuries came, one after the other, and the trails of blood and the pails of tears are testimonies that every man was looking out for self, that that other consciousness began to be self-consciousness. And we're looking out for number one. Until God burst upon the scene in the birth of Bethlehem and in the birth of Jesus Christ, that unique baby, God came into the world born as no other child was born, talked as no other man talked, taught as no other man taught, and he lived his life in the framework of a unique lifestyle. And he gathered these people around him and they were attracted to him because he was so incredibly unselfish. He, hadn't, he didn't have the stain of the primal sin upon him and so he wasn't turned in on himself. He was totally unselfish. And he told those that he'd come to give his life away and to, and to minister and to serve and not be served. And that brings us to this text of, John, of Mark chapter 10. Now watch it carefully. For two of those followers who were with him were named James and John. has a great ring to it, doesn't it? I like the names James and John. That'll fit just right on the marquee, James and John. Sounds a lot better than Judas and Bartholomew, doesn't it? I mean, you don't get that on the lights. And these men had a father whose nickname was Thunder. And you can kind of get a clue as to their personality trait, their, their context of life. Their father was Thunder. And so he taught their sons to go get what you want and go with a clap of thunder to get it. I mean, you only go around once in life and so you need to grab it with all the gusto you can like a thunderbolt. And they followed Jesus and they heard him talk about the cross, but they didn't really understand what he was talking about. But they, they supposed that with the cross he would bring in the kingdom and they dimly saw thrones for themselves. And so they came to Jesus and they said... When you start your kingdom, we're willing to wait. No hurry about it. We're willing to take, we're willing to do it on your time. But when you start your kingdom, we'd like to be on the right hand and on the left. We'd like to be in the places of honor. They wanted, they wanted power and they wanted proximity. That was their request. And they said, we're not doing this just for self, really. You know, kind of that little mask was on. A mother would think it was great. Mother would really like it, and Daddy would really be proud of us, and we don't think we're asking too much. And the other disciples were standing over on the side. I mean, when they said that, their adrenalines were squeezed. After all, they were sons of Adam too, and they were looking out for number one also. And they thought to themselves, hey, these guys are already in a unique position in the inner circle, and they're getting a piece of the action, and they were angry because they wanted to be number one also. And Jesus sensed that, and the Scripture says that He called them aside. I'm not sure who them refers to. Or is important to you, and that's the system. That's the way the world does it. And I'm not going to challenge that. I'm not even here to change it. You have your Roman emperor, and you have your proconsul, and you have your magistrate, and one sits on the right and one sits on the left. And I'm not going to challenge that system. I'm not even here to change it. But it is not so among you. End of conversation. 
And if you want to zoom in, a little television language, if you want to zoom in on, this, on that statement by Jesus, we're going to look at it in the explanation, in the example, and in the experience. The explanation. It would sure be easy to do it like the world, does it? No, it wouldn't it. I mean, we've got a lot of teaching. We've got, a, we've got a whole lifetime of example. It sure would be easy to do it like the world does it. But it's just not the way God does it. An elementary class took a field trip to the hospital. It was in a small town about like Durant, in a hospital about the size of Durant. And the nurse took them around to the hospital on the field trip tour and got them back to the place of beginning and, di and made a tactical error. She gave an opportunity for questions. You never do that with, with elementary students. And they were popping questions right and left, and one little boy raised his hand, and he said, Why does everybody always wash their hands so much? And her response was not perhaps one that you'd predict that she would give, but it was right on. She said, oh, that's simple. In the hospital, we just love being clean and we hate those old nasty germs. I mean, in the hospital, it might be different than any other place. And that's the way it is when God's people come together to make this little world within the world. It's just different there with God's people. They carry on this love-hate relationship with the world. I just love being here. I just love living on planet Earth. I'm just enjoying myself, and I hope I live to be a hundred. But God's people don't think like the world thinks, and God's people don't have the same mindset and values and opinions as the world has. And so Jesus said to these followers, you're following a man who doesn't do it like the world does it. The standard of the world is a standard of power. The test of measurement is how many people a man can control or how great is his army of servants at his beck and call or how many people on how many people does he impose his will. Not so among you, he said. God's people are committed to giving their lives away. To, to other consciousness, God's people are committed to serve. If you're going to follow me, that's the way it is. Leonard Bernstein was asked, what is the hardest instrument you have to learn to play in the orchestra? And he answered quickly, second fiddle. Several years ago, the Salvation Army gathered for its conclave, its annual meeting, its convention, and they were going to, they were going to discuss the policy of the Salvation Army, its policy of worldwide ministry. And William Booth, its founder, was to be there to, to make the policy statement He's going to tell them how they were to think and how they were to act. And just at the last minute, William Booth became ill. He was quite elderly at the time, and so he didn't make it. And he promised he'd send a telegra telegram to describe the policy that he wanted the Salvation Army to assume, not just for next year, but for all time to come. And on Thursday, the telegram came, and the leader of the convention hurriedly opened it up, and when he saw it, it was just one word, and he frowned. Then he read the word that was the policy of the Salvation Army, yea, of God's people. It was the word, others. What's your word? J.B. Phillips has a little book titled, When God Became Man. It's not as popular as it should be. In this book, he, he 
changed the wording of the Sermon on the Mount to make it sound more contemporary. I mean, he put, a, he put the Sermon on the Mount in button-down collars, put a briefcase in its hand, and set it to work on the Central Expressway in Dallas, made it sound modern and up-to-date. And this is how it goes. Happy are the pushers and the shovers. They really get on in this world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never get hurt. Happy are they that complain, for they'll get their way in the end. Happy are the blasé, for they never worry about their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the men of the world, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people notice them. That's the world's language, but it's not Jesus' way. Jesus said it like this, Happy are the humble, for theirs is already the kingdom of God. Happy are those who know what sorrow means, for they've already felt comfort and courage. Happy are the hungry and the thirsty, for they'll be fully satisfied. Happy are the plain who claim nothing, for the world blesses them. Happy are the kind and the pure, for they shall see God. And then there's the example. Even the Son of Man came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve. Even is the key word to that. Now, when you go to circling words in your Bible study, you circle the word even. That's the key word. Even the Son of Man came not to be served. It means that the one who has the right to all authority gave up everything to, to meet our needs. Even that man. It means the highest of the highest became the lowest of the lowest. Even him. It means... That he on whose shoulders the government rests, even that man called Jesus on him. Rest the government on his shoulders, rest the government. Even that man gave up everything he had for us. That's your example. And if you want a case for unselfishness, you turn to the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians and you see the Apostle Paul encouraging those Corinthian Christians to give their lives away. And he said that classic, made that classic statement, for we all know the grace of the Lord Jesus that even though he was rich, yet he became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. And he said, if you want to know how, if you want an example of life, there's the example. One last word, please. That is the experience Jesus said, are you willing to drink the cup that I drink? In other words, here were these men. They wanted to be right in there in the kingdom. He said, okay, let me tell you what it's like when you follow me. I wonder if you and I, I wonder if we really understand. I wonder if we really, really know what it means to follow Jesus. Here it is. He said, you've got to drink my cup. What does that mean? I'm sure you've sung the song, My Cup Runneth Over with, joy, with Love. I'm sure you've quoted Psalm 23, My Cup Runneth Over. It means, it means it is a symbol of your life's experience. It is a figure of what life hands you. Now catch this, watch this. Jesus is saying, are you willing to take what I'm handing you? Are you willing to go it this way? Are you willing to do it this way? Are you willing to drink this cup? 
And are you willing to be baptized with a baptism of, that I'm baptized with? That means that word means to immerse, to dip, to be overwhelmed. In other words, he's saying, are you willing to be completely immersed in the pain of my life, in the sorrow of my life, in the cross of my life? Are you willing to do it that way? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you're going to be in the kingdom, there'll be no cross, there'll be no crown without a cross. In the classic All's Quiet on the Western Front, a young soldier was lying in the trenches. His gun was resting on the parapet, and he was enjoying the eerie silence, the ceasefire, the calm between the war, warring armies. He was just kind of lying there in the sun, resting. On his fatigues were caked mud and blood. On his face was a look of far away, wistful longing. And he was thinking about when he was a boy in sunny Saxony, running across the fields, grass fields, in buttercups and daisies, chasing butterflies as a little boy. And all of a sudden, a beautiful butterfly kind of floated down out there just beyond the trench where he was resting. The other side, the enemy his side safety, there was that butterfly just floating down. And all of a sudden, he was that little boy again. He forgot where he was. He began to crawl out of that trench to get that butterfly, and then the staccato crack of rifles interrupted the silence. His body stiffened, and his hand opened, and slowly he slipped back into the trench. For him, the war was over. Are you listening? If you reach for greatness, just remember there's a price you'll have to pay for it. If you reach for greatness in the kingdom of God, it means that you'll have to become servant of all. If you reach for greatness in the plan of God, it means that you must become wholly other conscious. Kipling said it like this, if you stop to find out what your wages will be or how they will clothe or feed you, then Willie, my son, don't go down to the sea for the sea will never need you. And if you ask for a reason for every command and argue with men about you, then, Willie, my son, don't you go upon the land, for the land will be better without you. And if you stop to consider the work that you've done and boast of what your labor is worth, dear, angels may come for you, Willie, my son, but you'll never be wanted on earth, dear. Are you willing to go it that way? Now I hear what some of you are saying. Some of you are saying, well, now there is a discrepancy. I've always heard, I've always thought that, that the Christian life was victorious, that you reigned in life and you had dominion and you were Lord of life. Exactly. For when you are willing... Now watch this. This is what Jesus taught. For when you're willing to give your life away to meet other people's needs, something happens. 
and a strange kind of authority is built up in the life of that person to whom you minister and, and to whom you give service. A strange authority is built up in them and you don't even want it, but their whole attitude toward you changes. And when you seek to serve them in love with expecting nothing in return, a strange authority builds up in them concerning you. And they want to follow you. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus meant when He said, if I be lifted up, He meant if I am crucified on the cross, I'll draw all men unto me. And because Jesus Christ knelt down at the feet of the earth, the earth kneels down at the feet of the Christ. And because He bowed down and gave Himself up, the Scripture says that God has given the world to Him as a footstool. And that's the experience. And that's the case for unselfishness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the disclosure of Your Word and our life today, for the impact of this truth upon us to change us and to make us different. And I pray now that after hearing the Word, we'll not just be hearers but doers, and that in the impact, the dynamic of an invitation where men and women are given opportunity to respond, that we'll do Your will that we'll become God-conscious and not self-conscious. We'll become other-conscious and not self-conscious. Through Jesus Christ we pray and for His sake. Amen. Now in a spirit of prayer, I want to give these invitations. The first invitation is for you this morning to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. What He is asking of you is for you to come and give your life away. Give it to Him. Give it back to the One who gave it. Give it back to whom it belongs. And let Him take your life. Use you in His kingdom and for His glory. Have you ever given your heart to Jesus Christ? Have you ever trusted Him for salvation? Have you ever repented of your own lifestyle and control to say, I trust Jesus and Jesus only? Have you ever given your heart to Christ? We want you to come down these aisles this morning to say to these gentlemen who will be here and who are trained to teach you and help you, I just want to be a Christian. You do that. You make that step. and They'll help you to know how to be saved. The word is nigh thee, even thy mouth, even in thy mouth, the word. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile same Lord is rich unto all who call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come and let us help you call upon Him for salvation. The second invitation this morning is for you to come place your life in the church. To say, I want to join the church. I want to be a part of the fellowship of God. I want to be with those folk who are doing God's will. It's the Lord leading me. I feel God wants me to be here. I want to join the church. We'll be so excited to welcome you. Or you may want to come this morning in honest confession. I've just lived for self. I've been so self-centered. All my energies, all my interest, all my time, talent, money has gone to self. I want to live for God. I want to rededicate myself to Christ.
Now it's time to do it. The easiest time to do it is on the first word of the stanza. We'll sing it. You come while we stand. You come right on. <laughs>